You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. We got Vinay Seth Mota on the show today, and I'm excited to have you here. Vinay's maybe a little outside the normal uh, parameters of who we plan to have as guests on Designing for Analytics, but not entirely. He has an uh, engineering background, but he's done a lot of stuff in the product management space and as an executive. Correct me if I'm wrong, you've been at MathWorks before, you worked on Search at Endeka Technologies, and then you were at Kayak, which is one of my favorite sites actually for booking travel, as I'm sure everybody listening has probably touched Kayak at some point. And you were a product manager there, correct? That's correct, yep. Okay, and, and I know you did some healthcare, you were a CTO at Kairos, and, and so now you are managing director of data platforms at Manifold.ai, which is a services company that works on data science, uh, machine learning projects, artificial intelligence. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit about what's, what Manifold's doing and what you're doing there. Sure thing. So uh, Manifold as an organization, we are a AI consulting company, as you mentioned. And importantly, we unpack AI into really a focus on data engineering, data platforms, getting your data ready and then also building machine learning models and getting all of that put together into either an internal-facing or an external-facing product. So I'm looking forward to talking a lot more about that. As a company, we largely work with Global 500 organizations, also a spectrum of organizations that sometimes actually get down to fairly early-stage startups where they're looking for very specialized help in a particular area like computer vision, for example. We are largely a team of experienced product folks and uh, engineering folks who've worked at both large organizations like Google and Qualcomm, as well as venture-backed startups like some of the companies you mentioned in my background. What kinds of projects are people coming to you guys with? And what's, I mean, obviously, the, the whole AI machine learning thing is a, is a pretty active space right now. Everyone's trying to jump onto that and, and you got to invest in this. And so what kinds of projects are you guys doing? Yeah, that's a great question in terms of the different places and the different motivations people have when they, when they come to us. I try to demystify AI right from the first conversation, where particularly when we're talking to executives, which we often are, we want to try and get them to dial back a little bit on the enthusiasm and the pixie dust aspect of AI and really start thinking about it more like a tool or set of tools or a set of ideas that really enable them with some new capabilities, but also can be thought of. And what I at least see is the more traditional product development spectrum. And that's really what I like to use to frame where customers are when they come to us. And by the product development spectrum, I mean that there is a starting point of what are the right questions to ask and what are the right types of business strategy questions I should think about, go-to-market type questions uh, that you know, might be relevant to consider. Some customers that we talk to are starting all the way back there. There are uh, folks who've answered that question for themselves. And now they're actually starting to think more actively about what are the product-related areas I want to invest in based on my overall business strategy? What are some of the technology approaches I can take? Machine learning is not always the right answer for every business problem. And then really getting into more the 
actual design and architecture pieces, and then the hands-on keyboard of actually building and then deploying data engineering related data pipelines or machine learning models, um, for example. So we've really uh, seen clients come to us at all different phases. The parts we generally like to focus on start from the product strategy, technology strategy type conversations, going all the way to building and delivering software and machine learning models that are going to get deployed into production. So that's really our zone of focus. If I could take it back for one second, you you said pixie dust, and I thought that was kind of that was funny, but but I also get what you're saying there. Do, do you think as like consultants and service providers working in the space, I work on the design side, you're working a lot on the engineering side and the, the data science side. Are we propagating the wrong thing when we say artificial intelligence? And and I think to like in the analytics space, the term big data. And and Stephen mm-hmm. Few just wrote a book, I think, last year on it called Big Data, Big Dupe. And and I tend to agree with it. There's a lot of marketing hype kind of surrounding the term. Yeah, and, and no one can really even define what makes it big versus regular. Do you think we have to stop using that? Is that it does it matter what we call it? I kind of see you know, I feel like every kind of silly every time I say I because AI because has such a loaded meaning to people that maybe don't know as much about it. What do you what do you think about that? I generally agree with I think the spirit of your question, which is it's just good to use words all of us understand that map to things that, you know, we can of touch when we type with our keyboards and things like that. So it's very helpful to talk about software engineering as opposed to AI, for example, or a machine learning model. I've also come to terms with the fact that there is a massive marketing wave that is much larger than what you or I choose to do. Right. And I think that creates the context that someone is coming into a conversation with us. You know, when they enter the conversation, they already have some of that context. So I think what is more important for us to focus on as opposed to the specific choice of words is really taking where people are starting in a known context and then walking them to, you know, into either a, uh, a world where we feel like we can have a much more real conversation with the types of things that you know, are grounded in, in the actual work that we do. I think there's another aspect of a lot of people are uncomfortable with terms they don't understand, but they believe they're supposed to continue using them and they should understand them, etc. So I also find the other thing that's nice about taking a marketing term, but then really almost using it as an educational opportunity when you're unpacking those terms and people start to feel more comfortable that oh, okay, these things can be mapped into things I understand and, and then being able to use them much more effectively. And, and at least in our conversations with them, we have a shared vocabulary. So I often bucket those conversations under recognizing that this is a marketing term. Let's talk about what you mean by AI and let me unpack what I mean and make sure we have a shared vocabulary. So I think there's some nice ways to undo the marketing hype in more intimate settings. But I think at a larger scale, I have found that anytime I try to fight the marketing, you know, sort of the five-year macro trend marketing term, people mostly say, oh, you don't do anything related to that and you do this other <laughs> thing. And it's like, right. well, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Uh, so, so I think we have to <laughs> take our battles. Sure. And you know, I think the other thing, which I always have mixed feelings about, but it does feel like, and I've seen this with several of the major technology trends over the last two to three decades, is that it does motivate organizations that traditionally wouldn't look at technology as enabling components of of their business strategy. It does force them to at least take a look 
revisit new ideas that may have been scary before, but now they feel like, oh, well, let's, let's at least take a look because it seems everybody else is getting some value from it. It does at least stir up things inside organizations where you get some creativity going and, and people are willing to at least step out of their day-to-day and, and take a look. So I think I'm definitely not a hype person in general, but it, it does seem to serve uh, at least some positive purpose in that sense. I kind of see it as like this, we've kind of joked about this in the past, I think offline, but it's, it's kind of like there's a new hammer at Home Depot and everyone's racing out to go buy this tool, but not everyone knows what it does. It's yes. just, I got to have one like everyone else that does everything. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. on, that, on that thought, how many, like of the 10 people, like 10 clients that come in, what role would your typical client be? And of 10 of those, how many of them have either unrealistic expectations of like, hey, we, we want to do this grand, you know, grand project with AI and machine learning to do X versus, hey, you know, we want to really optimize this one part of our supply chain or we want to you know, do something very specific that's been kind of thought of in terms of a, either a product or a service offering or an optim- like an internal, you know, maybe it's an internal analytics thing where they want to actually apply an optimization or something like that. How many kind of fall into the, quote, educated versus maybe less educated in terms of what they're asking for from you? Yeah, I would probably say like order 20 to 30% of folks are in that bucket of, I have a very targeted need. I know exactly what I want to get out of this data pipeline. And I know that I have this other data pipeline I'd like you to work with to put the whole thing together. Or I need a specialized machine learning model that will help me you know, uh, segment my, some of my customers in a more fine-grained way for this very particular use case. Things like that. So there's, there's definitely, and those tend to be organizations that already have a software engineering capability. They've done data for other business problems already, and they either need more help than they have in-house, or they need some kind of specialized help. So maybe they've largely done more structured data marketing-related use cases, and now they want to do more natural language-related uh, work in a, in a different area. So they generally have a fairly good feel of the landscape and they know how our work would plug into their work. There is, uh, I'd say, probably roughly 50% of what we get is more where we get people who are VPs of technology, VPs of product. They understand operations in a pretty meaningful way, align a business leader who has a meaningful business case in mind. So they already have one or more business problems in mind that they think would be compelling. They want to know, is this a good fit for machine learning or not? What would be required to actually get to even trying out machine learning? So I would put those folks in the bucket that they've thought through some of the business strategy related, you know, sort of going back to that spectrum idea of starting from business strategy all the way to shipping something to production. I would say they're more in the product and technology strategy bucket where they want to figure out you know, I don't know what I have in the rest of my organization, but I, I know, you know, we have some software, we have some data based on running a website for the last four years, whatever else, or you know, some other kind of operational system. And I'd like to figure out if uh, we could use machine learning in some way to do something predictive, you know, for example, to improve how the call center handles inbound calls and prioritizes some of the tasks, for example. There are cases where people have much more thought through use cases in mind, but they don't have the expertise on 
what is the data pipeline? What data do I actually need for machine learning? Have I actually ever built and deployed a model before? They've usually not done that. So there's a lot of folks in that bucket. And then the third bucket is the remainder, which is really people are starting more in the business strategy side, uh, where they're saying, oh, we'd really like to have an open-ended conversation. Our CEO has a five or 10-year vision around transforming our core business and how we service our customers. You know, I've talked to folks that are in much more uh, traditionally industrial industrial businesses like paper processing, for example, or staffing, or you know, more like instrument manufacturing, or you know, or, or other types of manufacturing. Those kinds of areas. There is really this historical model of hardware or some other service that gets provided, as opposed to a software as a service. And I think everybody's interested in some kind of move to a subscription model and uh, also some understanding of what is the relevance of these technologies, but they're not at the stage where they've identified a particular business case or, or a use case. Do you think there's any, in terms of if I'm a you know, product manager or someone that's in charge of like, you know, bring, bringing ROI to data within my company, say I'm, I'm not a technology company, should I be looking to make an investment in a place where maybe it's like a more of a traditional analytics thing or I have people, you know, maybe I have humans doing eyeball analysis and making decisions about, you know, insights from the data and then saying, okay, what we'd like to do is actually see if we can automate this existing process. So it's kind of like A, B, C, D, E, F. We want to swap out stage D with a machine learning solution to free those people up to do other work. Or is it more like we have this data we're sitting on hey, we could train it and do something with it. We're not doing anything with it right now. Mm-hmm. Is, that li- is there a strategy or some thinking around like one of those maybe being a more successful project to take on? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, and I think uh, I, would, I would probably, I, I, uh, I think that's a great way to pose the question because I think one of the things I would think about as with any new effort in an organization is that you want to be successful as the person who's bringing in some new technology or new approach, whether it's process or people or, or technology. And so I think really having a lower risk, lower, sort of less, a smaller bite at the apple in some sense to get your first success on the board and then starting to build on that nucleus would definitely be the way I would think about getting going. There may be different situations where as a leader of a larger organization, you really have a directive to be more transformative and that can be a different type of conversation. But as I think about somebody who's in a product role at a, let's call it just for um, the sake of brevity, a non-tech organization, I think starting with a smaller project where you can get people used to the idea that you could do more with data, it's not that scary, you know, it's like another tool, it's like buying another piece of software and doing some training around it and those kinds of things, then, you know, it gives you a success that you can build on and, and people around you start to have some familiarity with it where you get less resistance the next time you go and, and do something. So I think, you know, I think of the overall change management challenge and it would frame the choice of project in, in some ways in that. You know, I think... Uh, one of the other frameworks I would use also, Ben Evans from Andreessen Horowitz recently wrote a really nice blog post about how people can organize their thinking around applications of machine learning. The core of the framework is essentially there's three buckets in which you can think of, of the problems and potential applicability of machine learning. 
the first one actually falls very much into exactly the example you gave where I might have an analyst working with existing data, et cetera. That's a known data, known questions bucket. So you have a set of data already available. You have a set of questions your analysts ask every day. Maybe they're eyeballing it. Maybe you know, they're running a simple uh, linear regression or something. And what's nice about applying machine learning in that case is it's literally like, oh, you have a mallet? Here, I have a stainless steel hammer. Let's see what happens if I apply my stainless steel hammer. And it's relatively easy to get set up to do it. Your organization knows roughly what's already involved with that data, the semantics of the data. It's clean enough that you could probably start working with that. And so it gives you a relatively easy pathway into trying out machine learning and just seeing like, oh, you know, we, we got a 50 basis point lift just by applying this new tool without really changing anything else. So that's one bucket. The other two buckets, I definitely encourage folks to uh, read the article. I'm sure we could put it in the show notes or something. The other two buckets are uh, known data, new questions. And then the last one is new data, new questions. Probably just to give you a placeholder for what the last bucket is, you know, those are opportunities like you might be able to apply computer vision or put new sensors in a particular environment. So gathering entirely novel uh, data streams and then asking new questions. There's a handful of organizing ideas like this. You know, we generally suggest uh, a few different articles. Uh, and again, I'm definitely happy to offer those for, for the show notes as well. If yeah. Awesome. Different ways to organize their thinking around approaching machine learning problems. Great. Yes, I'll definitely uh, put those links uh, into the show notes. So thanks for, for sharing those. Also, kind of a follow-up to that, like what in terms of... So, so once you're into a project, what are some of the challenges around for projects that have user interface or some kind of user experience that's directly accessed? Are there challenges that you see your clients having with getting the design right? Are there challenges about getting the model and the data science part right or getting it into production? I heard a lot about this at Strata conference that I was at in London that they're talking a lot about. There's kind of like, you can do all this kind of magic stuff with your data scientists and the PhDs, but if they don't know how to either help the engineers or themselves get that code into a production environment, it's just like sitting in a closet somewhere and it's never going to really return value. So can you talk about some of the design and the engineering challenges that might that you might be seeing? So I think on the design front, so I'm assuming most people listening to the podcast are familiar with the traditional product development processes and uh, design iteration and, and so forth. So what I'll offer here is the difference when you start thinking about data and machine learning. Uh, we have a process we call Lean AI, and what we've incorporated into that is this idea of a uh, feedback loop between a business understanding, a data understanding, then doing some engineering, this is the data engineering, and then doing some modeling and, and then putting something in front of users. And I think the major part here is that you may have a particular idea around what the ideal user experience might be. But then as we start to get into the data, as we start trying different modeling techniques, we might either surface additional opportunities that there may be something compelling that the user could do in their workflow using what the model has surfaced, or it may be that the original experience as envisioned is going to have to change because there's not enough predictive power in the data or a data source that you thought you'd be able to get your hands on is just not going to be available or, or things like that. 
So I think there is an additional component to the iteration loop that you have to rely on, which is just what is in the data, how much can I get access to, and then some of the more traditional software engineering constraints, which is, okay, well, if it's going to take six months to get that particular piece of data cleaned up enough such that we can actually use it, is there something lighter weight that we could at least get started with, put something in front of users first, and, and then continue to refine and, and iterate over time? That's probably the big difference in terms of uh, traditional product development that just involves software engineering and apps versus uh, working with uh, data and machine learning. There's a little bit of just the science of what is possible inside the data, given the signal inside the data. And then I think the engineering part is, is definitely, as you said, something that gets talked less about historically. And it sounds like, based on some of the things you heard at Strata, that is, that is something that is starting to change. And what I've seen is that a lot of the tutorials, a lot of the content out there has historically been focused on get your first model going or you know, take uh, this particular data set and try out building a model or tweaking this or that. And in that sense, there's also a lot of tools available for doing data science and data science exploration. But as product people, you know, it's great, exactly like you said, Brian, that you know, somebody's built a model that's interesting. But one, if we haven't built the rest of the product around it, and then if we haven't actually gotten that model to production, you know, as I like to say, if, if at the end of the day, somebody's not pushing a button differently because of your model or pulling a lever differently because of your model, it really doesn't matter that you built it in the first place. And that actually goes back to requiring engineering and product development type expertise as opposed to data science type expertise, which feel a little bit more like the traditional uh, science type disciplines where you're doing experimentation. What do you do in terms of, uh, I mean, do you get to the, the point where you're midway through a project and and like, this kind of, we're not sure if we can do this or the predictive power is not there. I imagine you probably try to prevent getting into a situation where that happens. Like, how do you, is there a client training that has to go on if, if they're coming to you too early? Like, we're ready to build this thing. We want to put a model to do X. And you're like, whoa, like, how do you yes. educate them on like, you know, come back to us in two months or like when you guys have figured this out or like, how do you yeah. educate them on <laughs> making sure that doesn't happen and they don't, they don't spend all this money on, on hiring data scientists internally to work with you or on their own or just you and not getting an ROI? Like, how do you educate on that? Yeah, and that's, again, you know, what we've incorporated into this Lean AI process where we've taken the spirit of Agile and some of the ideas around Lean Startup, for example. And there's actually an old framework from the late 90s called CRISP-DM. It's uh, from the data mining community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And really the idea in all of these things is tackling your big risks early and surfacing them. And so we take a a, a similar approach where, and you know, really it's um, anybody can do this, but it's it's getting an understanding of what what is the business problem you want to go after and what is the data you have available. So we call it a business understanding phase and a data understanding phase. And during that phase of the data understanding, it's really doing a data audit. So it's literally, and particularly it's an issue in larger organizations. People think they have access to certain data, but it may be that somebody in a different organization owns the data and they're not going to give it to you. And so it's just, you know, you sort of have the human problems that we've always had. And then there's other parts which are the, is there predictive power in the data? Is the data clean? 
And so we generally, the first thing we do is just apply a suite of tools that will characterize the data, profile the data, and help us get an understanding of what do we think is there. And then usually we found uh, working with clients, team members who have domain knowledge, they generally have pretty good intuition of what should the data show. And that oftentimes is a good way to normalize everybody's expectations. So as an example, we were working on one of a, with an industrial client last year. And they had, in addition to sensor data coming off their devices, they also had field notes that people had entered when they were servicing some of the equipment. But as we were working with their experts uh, during the uh, data understanding phase, the experts actually said, you know what, I wouldn't trust the field notes. People sometimes put them in, sometimes they don't. The quality is very, it varies a lot across who put those notes in and what they put in there. So let's just not use that data source. And you can really bring in some of the intuition that people already have around their data and uh, bring that into the conversation. And that it becomes a, you know, a, a sort of almost shared decision about what do we think we can try and get out of this data? What's in the data? And, and do you guys agree that this data actually is saying what you think it should say? Those kinds of things. So I would say, you know, tackling big risks early is is one of the the major themes of what we do. The other part, which really comes from again the engineering approach that a lot of us have taken historically from our past experiences, and and I imagine it's it's very I, I, perhaps probably the best analogy I can do from the product management days is this idea of just doing mockups and doing paper mocks and those kinds of things before you then get to higher fidelity. Box is there's a similar idea in machine learning where we have this idea like, okay, get some basic data through your data pipeline. Don't doesn't have to be perfect. And then we build this thing called a baseline model, which is, yes, there are 45 different techniques you can use to build a machine learning model. Let's take one of the simplest ones, something like random forest, where we know that's not the best performing model for every use case, but it's really easy to build. It's really easy to understand, you know, at least out of your first version, like what the model is doing and you can get some baseline of performance pretty quickly, which is, you know, does it perform you know, at 60% or does it perform at 80%? And then from there, you can start to have a discussion about, okay, how much more investment do we want to make? Do we need to get more data in here? Do we need to clean the existing data, transform it in different ways, you know, explore different modeling techniques, those kinds of things? I would draw the analogy to some of the uh, product development processes that we would follow if we were just doing a software engineering project, which is let's get something built end-to-end, then add more functionality over time, right? things like that, and then take it from there. And most of the time, the, like, the projects you work on, are your clients, are they the actual end users of the, of the service of the direct beneficiaries, or typically are they building something internally that will be used by other employees or vendors or their customers, how close to you are close to that person that's going to benefit from or use the service uh, that you're building? Yeah, so I would say that all the projects, both, and I'm definitely not aware of all of our projects, but the projects right. I'm aware of and and the ones I'm you know, working on right now, they all have enterprise users. None of them are applications that are going to go out to end users. But nonetheless, the enterprise users are folks who are not technology people or not you know, particularly specialized in data or anything like that. They are more folks who are executing on processes uh, as, as part of a broader workflow. So 
For example, it might be a health coach that is at a particular company, or it might be a call center employee, or it might be a um, the maintenance and repairs center at at a uh, industrials company, for example. You know, it's it's more users, internal users, or if it's external users, it's still again enterprise users who are using a larger larger product. Do you ever get like direct access to those when you're working with your clients, or t- typically is there is your client kind of the interface to them, or how, how involved do you get with with some of these more you know like a, a call center rep or something like that? It actually depends on the type of expertise the client has. And so if they have a product owner and a product manager who's fairly confident about their ability to interface with the end user, we might insist on being part of the user feedback sessions as some of these models go in front of users or maybe at the beginning of a project, having a few conversations to understand the context in which particular operational data was gathered or the workflow that might surround the model that we're building or the data pipeline that we're building. You know, we might have a few conversations, but again, if they have a strong product function already, mm-hmm. then we would probably be more isolated from that. If on the other hand, there isn't that much of a product function that is familiar with software engineering and uh, product development, so some of these non-tech organizations, you know, product manager there may be much more hardware-oriented or they may not even have a product role, uh, depending on the type of operation. There, we would be much closer to the end users, understanding the use cases. You know, we'd also want to partner with whoever is doing the, um, doing the uh, product design and you know, some of the other UX components uh, as well. So I would imagine that there'd generally be another partner of some sort. You know, we're interested in talking to the end users, but we're definitely not the experts on product design and uh, so forth. And so mm-hmm. you know, we'd expect somebody else to play that role, either somebody like you, where uh, you know, the client is partnered with another organization or individual, or they have that capability internally. One place we think of lots of data, obviously, is, is, is in the, the traditional analytics space, like for internal companies or even uh, like information, like SaaS products and information products. Do you see like the capabilities of data science and machine learning that have really been enabled in the last few years because of the primarily what I understand is there's more data availability, there's more compute power availability. So it's not so much that the science is is new. A lot of the science I hear is, is quite old. The formulas and algorithms have been around. They just, it hasn't been as feasible to implement them. So now that it is, do you see that traditional analytics deployments over time will start to leverage more and more like predictive capabilities or prescriptive analytics where there's less report generation, less eyeball analysis? And, you know, so you say in the next five years, you know, 20% of traditional analytics capabilities will be replaced by more prescriptive and predictive capabilities because of this? Or is it, is it really just kind of going to take a lot longer to do that? I imagine some of it's just at the mercy of the data you have available. You can't solve every problem with this. But do, do you see like an evolution happening in that? Is that making sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit upon a really important idea. So one thing, I'll start my answer though, taking a slightly different view, which is you know, what is, what is going to stay constant? And then we can talk about what is going to change. I think one thing that is going to stay constant, and I've been in the business intelligence reporting world since the early 2000s, and I've, I've both been disappointed by it, but also come to accept it, which is I, the, the part I found most exciting about business intelligence, analytics, reporting, pick your, uh, pick your category name, 
is when you can get it embedded into a workflow and the folks who are actually you know, they're on the front lines making, running through a workflow or going through a customer interaction or whatever, they actually have access to that data and they're able to drive decision-making as, as part of their process. Mm-hmm. So I think what we've seen in the last order 20 years is this continued increase of this notion of a data-driven organization that people should have more access to data when they're in these workflows and decision-making and you know everything from things you've probably heard about like insurance companies or telco company, call center folks being able to offer you something, you know, if you're going to churn, for example, and an offer pops up on their screen and they're able to give that to you. That's a nice example where somebody's actually using the decision making as part of their production workflow. Um, So I think we're just generally seeing more of that. So no matter what, whether it's prescriptive or descriptive, you know, whatever else, I broadly see continued adoption of analytics and, and data and more workflows you know, across a whole, whole range of software products. So I think I'm generally excited about that. I wish it would take less time, but at least we're continuing to make progress on that. And then I think what you hit upon is what's going to change. I firmly believe we're seeing this in name today, but I think we'll see this more in actual, the nature of the work itself in the future. There's a lot of people who have the business analyst role today in organizations and they're supporting different functions. And you know, largely I think of them as people who have a fairly deep understanding of the business. They generally live in Excel. They're you know, complete masters of Excel. They can build what-if models. They can do scenario solving. They can do VLOOKUPs, do all of those kinds of things in Excel. I think they're going to get a whole additional set of tools I'm imagining, you know, and I tell people this, so I'm going to go on the record here and, and suggest it. But I'm almost imagining Excel 2020 is going to have a, a button that you can hit and you can say, here's my data, go try out 50 different models or 500 different models. And Excel will go off, ship your data to Azure, it'll run a whole bunch of different models and come back and tell you, here's the three that seem to fit your data best. And Really, what the skill that you need at the end of the day, which is the skill you need today, is understanding the statistics of the data, understanding, having some intuition around the business and what's going on around you, and then really being able to swap in some of these other statistical methods that you know, we, we sort of group under machine learning, being able to swap those in once they, those tools are mature enough for uh, broader use and deployment. Because of that, I think, yes, in the five-year time frame, we'll see the leading edge of more prescriptive analytics entering product workflows, just like we're now. And I would say, you know, I'd be curious about your opinion on this, but I feel like we're in the past the early adopter and more now in the mainstream phase of descriptive analytics entering uh, some of the different products. Yeah, that would be a... <laughs> Maybe you just fed Microsoft a little tip for how to improve their <laughs> their office suite down the couple of years from now. So cool. This has been really uh, informative. Thanks for coming on. Do you, do you have any other like any single message or advice you'd give to data product managers or or analytics leaders and businesses in terms of how they can you know design and or deploy you know, better data products in their organization or for their customers if they are, you know, like a, a SaaS or information provider? Any, any general tips you've seen or something you can offer them? Maybe a, a handful of things just to run through at, at different levels of applicability, I'm sure. 
So one of them is that I think, you know, having a good business case as the way we talked about earlier and taking on something small is definitely very helpful to build some success. It also, though, maybe squelches some of the visionary enthusiasm that people might have. And so I think in general, trying to feed some of the vision component while you're trying to get a very concrete success on the board is something just to keep in mind, I think, to get people excited about the potential and, and, and the future. So that's, that's one bucket. And, and I think one thing, if you have a vision in mind, one of the things your technology teams and your machine learning teams can do, and this is something we definitely ask for when we do our engagements, you can, even while you're solving a, a specific business case and a specific problem, you can do the work in a way that lays the foundation for longer-term leverage on the work. And so if we build a data pipeline, we know that your two-year vision is, you have a specific two-year vision, we can actually start to lay some of the pieces, even as part of that project, to make investment towards that vision. You know, while you should execute on smaller opportunities, you should also dream big. So I think that's, that's one general thought. I think another thing I've been starting to form an opinion around is that I think to execute successfully on a product and execute you know, the data and machine learning component of a product, I think you have to have a what in mind. Like, what is this product going to do with the data? I think so. You need to have you know a product direction, product sense, product vision, whatever you want to call it, to know what's going to happen in the context of that product. I think longer term, when you start to think about the context for these kinds of capabilities, I think you need to have or need to think about organizational vision. So for this product, it may be that you did it with a couple of folks from another team that sat down the hall just to get something out the door, but then. Really having an idea in the 18-month time frame, you know, do you want to build a software engineering organization? Do you want to build a data engineering capability? Do you want to have a data science team? Do you want to work with the finance team to maybe get a couple of business analysts over to a new team? And so I think really starting to contextualize your product vision with what's your organizational vision, I think is, is important for the longer-term picture and um, you know, having clarity around that even as you tackle some of the shorter-term opportunities. So I think those are, those are probably a couple of things that hopefully uh, people will find helpful. Yeah, no, I, I definitely did. I, I was actually going to kind of follow this up, but it may be an unnecessary question. But one of the services that I'm, I'm often asked to come in with clients is to help them either, take, either envision a new, a new product, something that they're working on, and it's it's what I call getting from the nothing to something phase, where it's a, it's a Word document of requirements or capabilities, features, what, what have you, and getting to that first visual something. Sounds like you still think that that step, even if you don't bite off the whole thing from an engineering standpoint, having an idea of your goalpost about where a service might go that, incorporate, that could incorporate some machine learning or AI technology still is helpful in kind of deploying a small increment of you know, of utility into the organization. Would you, would you agree with that still? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think even for the folks building your models or building your data pipeline to get the data cleaned up and usable, you know, whether it's for analytics or for your models, it's really helpful to have that broader context, excuse me, as opposed to having a very narrow window into 
oh, I need these three fields to be cleaned up and available. And you know, if, if you can't provide that broader context, I, I feel like you end up with a lot of disjointed pieces as opposed to something that feels good when you're done. So right. I, I would definitely agree with that. Well, Vinay, thank you so much for coming on. This has been super uh, educational for me and I'm, I'm sure for people listening as well. So where can people learn more about what you're doing? I'll definitely put the uh, Ben Evans uh, link and the, your lean AI process that you talked about. So send me those links. But where can people learn more about what you do? Our website, Manifold.ai, is definitely the best place to start. We have a, a few things about the type of work we do and uh, some case studies as well as some background of our team. So that would be helpful. In terms of my own sort of time, I actually don't spend that much time on social media. So LinkedIn is probably the easiest place to find me. Generally post things there occasionally and definitely participate in some conversations there. So uh, it'd be great to to chat with folks there. All right. Great. Well, thanks again. And uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Ryan. Really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.